We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Phil Brown. It's the interview that we done on the webinar, which was today. Uh, the The video wasn't great, so I wanted to get the podcast out as quick as possible because the sound was really good and the information was absolutely brilliant. I thought Phil's perspective here was unbelievable about coaching at the highest level. So. Phil has worked with Sam Allardyce at Bolton Wanderers, an assistant. He's also obviously worked as a head coach with Hull City on other championship teams. He's also gone to India. He also talks about coach education and his attitude towards that is absolutely fantastic. So you're going to love this here. Hope you enjoy it. If you're also looking for content at this time, please go to modernsoccercoach.com. We've got all the webinars that we're doing. We're uploading them every single day almost. We're trying to keep the podcast going as well. So we're putting out a lot of stuff. If you want to support what we're doing, please feel free. Go to the Modern Soccer Coach website, modernsoccercoach.com. Go into the shop, order a book. We've got some new webinars up there as well. So hope you enjoy it. We'd love to know what you think. At Gary Kareen on Twitter, at Gary Kareen on Instagram. Thanks so much for the support. Here is Phil. Enjoy. Phil, thanks so much for joining us and happy birthday. Excited to have you on. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. I didn't know I was going to be talking to you guys on my 61st birthday, but I'm delighted. <laughs> uh, okay, great, great. Well, I'll get straight into it because um, I know you've, you've probably got some plans, but things we talk about in the coaching community today, data and science are very much mainstream. You were part of a club yeah. in Bolton Wonder that were very much innovators in your ear before your time. We talk a lot about culture today and coaching, and I wanted to get an insight into to what that Bolton Wanderers culture was like with Big Sam whenever you were you were leading the way in science and data before it was even popular? Well, I was, well, I was doing a little bit of homework on yourself, Gary. I hope you don't mind. And uh, one of the, the the lines that came out in, in your resume was coaches are coaches are cultures in action. And um and I think that's a it's a great statement. It's um it's something that I think it was Sam more than myself was trying to develop because he was in the, the hot seat. And uh, I think it comes from the top. Um, you know, I'm not talking about uh, directors or, or owners of football club, albeit they have a brand issue. Uh, but I think where where the football club itself, the culture of the football club comes from the manager, comes from the head coach, if you want to call him. And um, Sam was obviously well into that a lot more than what I was at the time. Uh, I was focusing heavily on on my side of of the deal, which was obviously as assistant manager, first team coach, and and doing the uh, the nitty gritty stuff on the training ground and getting to learn my trade where that was concerned, but also keeping a close profile on or keeping a close keep, keeping close tabs on Sam himself. Uh, but I think, strangely enough, um, he got his idea about culture um, uh, from you guys. And, and what I'm saying, you guys, I'm talking about Mika. Um, he, he had an opportunity when he. When he finished his career, playing career, I think he played San Jose Earthquakes, and he had one year over there, 
uh, and then came back to England and, and obviously decided to go into the the other side of the game, which was coaching, management, and uh, and take what he learned from, from the Americans and from the way they were dealing with players. Um, and he, he took that into his, his philosophy. He took that, he took that into his culture. And, and what his idea in all them years back, I'm talking about mid-90s, um, was to have one coach per player. Now, it, sound, it sounds a little bit um, ironic or silly to say that uh, why should every coach have every player have a coach, uh, but it wasn't. It was it was something that he didn't mean he didn't mean football coaches. He meant any kind of coaching, and whether that be psychology, whether it be strength and conditioning, whether it be physical movement, you know, what whatever it was, um, you could come into work knowing full well that if you had something you thought you needed to work on, uh, and I always go back to this. Uh, strangely enough, me and Sam both. Uh, ventured outside the game um, and also working in the game at the same time. He had a, a pub and a nightclub and a, and a snooker hall and I had a restaurant. And um, it was almost like uh, dealing with uh, the customer. Uh, the footballer was the customer. And what when he walked into your changing room, you gave him a menu. And the menu had whatever you thought you needed. We also had our own menu and that menu was brought together uh, on a Monday morning uh, with an eight o'clock meeting, staff meeting, and um, and we we planned the week, we planned the month, we planned, you know, you, you did the whole season basically, you know, we we tried to uh, to delve straight into a full season, but you brought it back to the week and uh, and then more importantly in the day, and uh, if you had a menu and you could hand it out to a player and say to him, go on, what do you need today? It's almost like the same as walking into a, a bar. Uh, walking into a restaurant, um, you gave him what he needs or what he thinks he needs. And at the same time, the culture was to make sure that they got what we needed. And that was uh, coaching, education, you know, learning them how to play the game we, the way we wanted the, them to play. And if they wanted a bit of psychology on the side, if they wanted strength and conditioning on the side, if they wanted flexibility, if they wanted yoga, if they wanted, you name it, we, we provided it. And um, I always remember the early days at Blackpool, we had... Uh, we only had four people in the backroom staff, myself, Sam, uh, Mark Taylor and Jack Chapman. And uh, then Monday morning meetings were quite feisty because it was four of us and we all we were all sort of vying for the uh, the microphone, as it were, the, you know, say what we needed to say. And then one one morning at Bolton Wanderers, Sam was um, almost laughing out of control. Uh, eight o'clock on a Monday morning, I'm looking at the guy, and I'm I'm sort of chairing the whole meeting, and uh, I'm looking at the guy and saying, "What what what is your problem? What is wrong with you?" And he said, "Count how many people's in the room." And when I counted, there was 36 coaching staff, and that was that was the moment that he said to me, "Remember the days when we said one coach per player, and we had it, you know, we had it in, in abundance." And uh, so the players will never ever forget their moments because they got everything they needed. They got everything they wanted. Um, and it was a fantastic time for everybody, but it, it wasn't just uh, one coach per player. It was, it was trying to also maximize the resources that we had. You know, we had some, you know, you were, talk, you were talking about innovation. You were talking about um, sports science and data and, and you name it, we had it. Uh, we had it in abundance, but we had to use it wisely. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't let the players know everything, you know. And, uh, we just had to fine tune it what we actually fed into the players. Um, 
so the culture was very scientific it was very demanding but it was also very much so enjoyable um you know you enjoyed going into work you enjoyed um the challenge and the tests that were were around the corner um one of the things that the, the test that sam put to the coaching staff in terms of football was that we had 11 degrees on the backroom staff with regards to education um sports science you nearly had 11 degree holders and uh, obviously our pinnacle of, of our degree uh, was the uefa license so the, the pro license as it were uh and myself sam neil mcdonald um eventually got to that level where we had three we, we were one of the most qualified backroom staff in the premier league in the, in the world probably uh, we had three pro license holders in 2002 2003 uh, which, you know, at the end of the day, when you look back at that 16, 17 years ago, it was phenomenal what we were, what we were giving to the players and, and able to deliver to the players because of, of how we were qualified and, and capable of doing it, if you know what I'm saying. Mm, that's brilliant. The, the, the team, the Bolton team, when you look back at it, is like unbelievable how the Jurkevs and the JJ Gotchas of the world and, and the Campos first of all, how they ended up there. But I, I'm, I'm curious to see or to hear how you got them in with and still kept the identity of the hard work culture and this, like, giving teams a hard time. How, how did you manage to blend that together? We, we had um, an idea that uh, they, were the, um, they were the icing on the cake, as it were. The cake was the most important part. Um, and we had a, a cultural... Uh, decision to make whether we wanted to stay British, English, whatever I call it, you know, but we we needed to understand that the Premier League at the time was not as not as um, cultural, shall we say, not as, um, you know, there wasn't as many foreign players in the Premier League in the early 2000s, you know, you're only talking probably less than 20%, 20, 20-25% maximum. Um, so we had to maintain that um, that understanding that, you know, if we had that grounding of British players, you know, I'm talking about Mike Whitlow's, um, Dean Holdsworth's, you know, Ian Marshall, you know, I'm going back early 2000s where we had a real strong backroom of, um, or, or changing room of, of English or British style players who understood the game uh, with regards to uh, to England. Probably not as much as the Premier League, you know, because we didn't want to get in the way of, of the progress of the Premier League by any stretch of the imagination. We wanted to enhance it. Um, and hence the reason why we, we brought in these players. And you have to take a hat off Sam where it was concerned. You know, the attraction of little old bold wonders to Yuri Yorker, of how you can sell that thought process or picture to JJ Kocha is, is quite phenomenal. But he was he was brilliant at that. And, um, and we all went along with it, you know, we all bought into it. But, you know, People like Kevin Nolan um, spring to mind with regards to the continuity that we had from being um, a young apprentice in the game, uh, coming through the ranks and then having a voice. You know, that was one of the big things where Kevin was concerned. We, we didn't just want the same four or five people talking all the time in the change room. Um, obviously, you had Sam's input from, from the beginning, but we wanted, um, we wanted buy-in from the players, you know, and regardless of the, of the language, if there was a barrier, we'd find a way of getting around it, you know, we, with translators, with, with whatever we needed to, to get that point of view across. 
And the Spanish brought, you know, you're talking about Campo, you had um, Fernando Hierro. Uh, we had one or two Spanish players coming through, and they are very, very strong-minded people, um, very, yeah. um, very strong in their beliefs of, in how the game should be players, played. But bottom line is they were coming to a club where Sam Allardyce had a way of, of playing the game, and it was, it was quite simple. Um, you know, you, you talk about culture, yeah, we went, went along with that cultural factor, but the way we played the game was to get it, get it into the front man and get it into the areas of the pitch what would hurt the opposition, and then play quality football from there. And that's where your camp, uh, sorry, that's where your Akotchas and your Yorkers and your Stelios Yanakopoulos and El Hadjouf and you know the the players that could handle the ball in tight areas in the third of the pitch. The more rough and tumble guys were your Kevin Davies, your Henrik Pedersen, you know the guys who can actually take the batter and ram kind of style of football, as it were, where centre-half's going to come through the back and, and try and upset you and, and, and knock you off your game. We had the physical attributes to be able to handle that. But once we had that ball in that area, we had players that could play, you know. So I think Sam was dealt um, a fairly uh, harsh card, if you like, by saying it was route one football, it was long ball football, it was direct football. All of that was quite evident, getting the ball into the final third. But once it was there, we could play. Um, and I think, for some reason, Sam never defended that. I, I don't know why. Maybe he just thought the names themselves would defend it. You know, the fact that you've got a World Cup winner uh, there. You've got a, one of the most colourful characters in the game. Uh, you know, the fact that we had that, he just let them do the talking, you know. And uh, But um, it was it was... It was probably the strong character in Kevin Nolan, probably more than anybody else, uh, who had a, a, um, a good say in the matter on uh, how we managed to keep our British mentality, shall we say? Your first season at Hull City, away wins at Spurs and Arsenal. Like, that, unbelievable. How, how does a team then set up Newly promoted team. Usually today, when you tune in the, the the Saturday morning over here, it's usually those teams that are sitting back and trying to grab a point. How did you set up your your team away from home to win those big games, and how did you get that belief into the players? Um, the belief came with a good preseason, and uh, I know a lot of managers managers will say that. But we we um, when I was at Bolton Wanderers with Sam, we always. Uh, spent uh, a good week to 10 days in the uh, foothills of the Alps in, in um, Italy and went to a place called Bormio, which was altitude training. Uh, and it wasn't glamorous by any stretch of the imagination. However, it was, it used to be, um, the grounding and the, the pre-season for Inter Milan. So obviously that there was something there and it was the quality of the food, it was the quality of the uh, of the surface that we were training on it was the quality of the hotel but more so the quality of the air and you were like 10,000 feet up and you were really struggling to breathe sometimes and we, we were putting them through their paces but at the same time when we came back down from, from that it was almost like you were playing it was so easy to play game on, at, at, um, you know, at water level at, um, at sea level so I made sure that uh, when I was going into management if, I, if we could afford it I would go to Bormio, and uh, my chairman fortunately uh, bought into that idea. He was into that innovation. He was into the um, the forward thinking, you know, the being ahead of the curve, as it were. And 
he came with us. He actually came with us. He was um, joined in the pre-season. Um, he was very athletic, the guy. He loved his tennis. Um, and he, he came in and, and realised that it, it sounds like we were going to the foothills, foothills of the Alps for a jolly up. It was nothing nothing in the way of a jolly up. It was real hard work, but it was, it was really bringing everybody together. And it was that standard of quality that went from the championship getting promoted to the Premier League arriving at the Premier League and then going into international Inter Milan's training camp. This is this is where they prepare for their, their season. So getting that point of view across and making the players feel like they were Premier League players. I think I think I've got a, a sort of a heads up on, on the Premier League at the time because I had said to all my players leading up to the final game at Wembley uh, in the promotion season, I said to every one of the players, don't worry about contracts don't fear not playing in the Premier League everybody at this football club will get an opportunity to play in the Premier League whether it be one game one season um, for the rest of their careers I will get I will give them the opportunity and I, I think to a man uh, I don't think anybody can argue against that I think they they all got the opportunity to play in the Premier League and and really I think that's the that's one of the main reasons why we hit the ground running you know and the, them first 10 games were Unbelievably, not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I think we caught people on the hop. I think people didn't respect us. People didn't expect us to be as organised and, and also be capable of, of winning a game of football, you know? Yeah, I'm fascinated by that process that, you know, you, you answered one of my questions there about, you know, kind of transitioning the team, the championship team to the Premier League team. So, I mean, what's the biggest differences, Phil? Like, what's the biggest difference in a, in a top-level championship footballer and someone that's got to live with the Premier League? I think it's belief. It's um, it's um, an understanding. If you and it, a lot of people can say, what makes a Premier League player? Is it one game? Is it one season? Is it is it a hundred games? You don't, you can't actually answer that question until you've you've been in there, you know. And Wayne Brown was one of the one of the players who I have to say I, I took my hat off to. We got the guy, uh, he was local, we got him from uh, from Colchester um, and uh, he went to Ipswich, he played at Leicester. Wayne wasn't blessed with great pace but um, he, had a, he had a very keen eye on the game. He could read the game very, very well but he wasn't blessed with uh, outstanding running ability or pace and, and when we got to the Premier League he had one game basically and uh, that was against Wigan Athletic and and we got beat 5-1. I think it was the second game or the third game of, of the Premier League season. And it was the one game where we lost and we lost heavily. And I think that was a, a decision I made um, saying that Wayne probably couldn't handle the pace of, of or the thought process. Not, not the pace, the thought process of the quality striker. They had Emil Heskey and Ami Azaki. That was the two strikers that Wigan had at the time. And they were just very, you know, regardless of what people thought of Emil Heskey, big lump, played alongside Michael Owen. You look at the, the, the record of Emil Heskey, his strike partner always did well, always did well in, in terms of scoring goals. So he handled the physical side of the game, but he was also a very, very clever player. And a lot of people didn't give him any credit for that, you know, because you see six foot two, six foot three, big lad who can run. Um, you sort of, uh, you, you, you overlook that. Uh, but if you played against Emil, you knew you were in a game and he was clever. Um, and he, he made a fool out of us that day. And, and that was one of the reasons why Wayne probably only played one game. But, you know, I'm thinking about Dean Marnie, people like that. Dean Windus, 
uh, they had to wait some times and, until uh, the right game came along for them. But when they got the game, it was a, a belief in me and, and vice versa that they could play at this level. You know, they had uh, they had the ability and they had the, the certain the pace, but you have to have that thought process. You know, you have to have a, a speed of thought, um, certainly in the final third, to outstrip some of the clever defenders that were in the Premier League. And I think that was the biggest difference between that and the Championship. I think Championship defenders, don't get me wrong, they're very, very good, very athletic, uh, very physical. Um, but that train of thought, that just that thought process in the Premier League was just that split second quicker, you know. So for all I'm talking about, the quality of the the final third play, it's the speed of the defender's brain that you have to outwit. And I think that was the difference. Mm. Is there, in that transition then, from a culture from Championship to Premier League, is there any risk involved in your recruitment where you take a player that's high talent level, but you do, you know you, you're not sure about the character if it's an international foreign player? You 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 run the risk of that um, that character assessment if you don't do your homework properly properly. And I think an awful lot of uh, managers will pick the phone up to managers and and uh, they'll have a, a frank. Uh, conversation about the player and invariably it'll be about his style of, of character in the changing room. Is he a leader? Is he is he a bad egg? Is he is, is he whatever? Majority of the players that you're talking about are already uh, have have a history in, in, in the higher divisions in where whatever the country they're coming from. Um, but it, it really is a character that you're bringing into a football club has to suit the character of our changing room. And, and I could look back in the whole city changing room and and look fondly at um, local produce, as in Dean Windus. Um, you've got to call Ian Ashby, albeit he's a brummy. You've got to call Ian Ashby, who's local produce, having lived in the area for a number of years, but also captain the football club right the way through the, the Premier League from the lowest, lowest division, Nicky Barnby. I think them three in particular, understanding what it meant to play for Hull City, you had to pass the test with them guys, you know, and, Quite often, my final check on a player would be to take him out, have a, a bite to eat him, you know, especially if he has his family and, and you want to bring them into the area, you know. Obviously, invite them to to Hull, um, the nice surrounding areas, not obviously the, the, inner, the inner city because you're trying to sell a football club and there's some bad areas, there's my way you go. Um, I always remember a story with um, with a player I was saying from Manchester United and... and he wasn't going to sign because he thought one of the inner cities uh, in in England, Hull, was in the top ten for one of the worst. So he was about not to sign. But I took him to um, one of the nice villages in the area, and, and he put pen to paper. But these are the tactics that you have to employ. But quite often, I'd, I'd take them to a, a restaurant and and maybe get Nicky Barmby to to bump into them accidentally, or or Dean. Not so much Dean Winders because he'd always have four or five pints with them. And that's that's not the answer. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm all joking aside, you know, they had to understand what kind of a changing room they were coming into. And, uh, you know, little old Hull City, we were everybody's favourite to get smashed out of sight uh, in the Premier League. So to, to sell that family, to sell that thought process of, of what the area was truly all about, um, come down to you know, the, the strength of character of the changing room that I already had, you know, boys that understood that the, the area was in 
it's third generation of deprivation, you know, the uh, fishing industry, grandfathers, great grandfathers, fathers had been, you know, not working for 30, 40, 50 years. And, and what a, a great opportunity we had just to play some good football for them, you know. Um, but we all bought into that that process and even the chairman, you know, lowering prices, allowing people to come and watch Bill in the stadium, playing good football, putting putting sweat and guts and pride on the shirt. All of them were part and parcel of the of the changing room and um you had to you had to pass that test, I'm afraid. Brilliant. The half time team talk at Man City as coaching coaches we all know the media reaction to it. I, I was interested to get your insight into what the next few days at the club looked in terms of how you adapted or if you adapted your leadership style. Did you have more meetings? Did you have more sit-downs with individuals? Did you distance yourself or did you continue on as, as what you were doing? In the, in the main, Gary, I, I try to continue in the, in the, in the method I was, I was um, achieving with and um, how, I, how I would describe that as just being as brutally honest as I possibly could. Um, and the honesty came out with the truth of why I did it, you know, um, because we, you know, you're saying the next three to four days, we actually had a turnaround of two days of, we had a game against Aston Villa at home uh, on the 28th of December, I think, um, where we had a quick turnaround. So, you know, players had to understand why I did it. Um, in the end, in hindsight, you know, it was probably the wrong thing to do because I opened up, I exposed the, the changing room uh, to the rest of the world and, and how to achieve. And we did achieve it, you know, with survival in the, in the Premier League, regardless how it happened, um, we survived. But I go back to that Aston Villa game and um, I realised I realised before that game, during and after, that the media had turned against me in particular, not the club, but even in, in turning against me, um, I realised that I was really a problem to the changing room if I didn't do something about it. So I had to adapt, sorry, I had to adopt a different style of interview um, without being as open as what I used to be, without being as honest as what I used to be, without being as forthright as what I used to be. I had to hate a lot of things. I had to not tell lies by any stretch of the imagination, but I had to... I had to sort of defend the changing room again. Um, and that game against Aston Villa, we were 0-0 coming into the final few minutes of the game. And um, we uh, we had a goal disallowed. Uh, sorry, was it a penalty saved? I think it was a penalty saved, sorry. Uh, but then we had a, a decision turned against us uh, with a handball on the line um, by... Uh, a Villa, I think it was from a corner and it, it, obviously they had a full back on the line and, and one of the, Ashley Young I think it was, handled the ball uh, it hit the crossbar, came back the referee gave a penalty and the linesman overruled it and they went up and scored uh, from that resulting goal kick, which we didn't get the penalty obviously from that resulting goal kick they went up and scored and scored a 90 second minute winner um, now that 0-0 zero zero against Villa would have been a good point, it would have been a very good point having been drugged 5 one at Man City uh, two days beforehand, it would have been a fantastic point, and it actually could have quieted people down from the situation. Um, but we lost one nil, and the viewing um, press conference was 
was brutal. Uh, mm. I realised, you know, after that press conference that it looked like um, one or two media guys were out to get me. Um, now, if you haven't been in that position, you won't know what I'm talking about. But and you, you might also think there's a little bit of par- <laughs> there's a little bit of paranoia sitting in, but. To be brutally honest, I uh, I had good backroom staff. I had um, Brian Horton, had over a thousand games as a manager, and I had Steve Parkin as first team coach, who had over three four hundred games as a manager already. And these two guys, I sat down with them and talked very very openly about it, and um, they agreed. They thought uh, something had changed, and um, we had to set about just trying to defend ourselves, you know, and consequently it got to the last game of the season and, and we survived, but by the skin of our teeth. Um, but we got there in the end, you know. It is, it's fascinating, the the truth, because everyone said, like, one of the most important things to be as a coach is honest, but I remember, like, Stuart Pearce used to be very honest in his, in his post-games and uh, he got slated and then Jose Mourinho yeah. just, Marson said that we, we didn't see it or they give one word answers and they get slated as well. So you can't win either way, can you? But I'm, I'm talking to you, Gary, and, um, you know, I'm talking to a, an educated man who's got experience in the world of football and, and obviously, you know, good luck to, you know, this kind of, um, this kind of set, setup. I think it's fantastic to open up to other coaches. Um, is probably one of the reasons why I'm talking so honestly, honestly, because we've all been in that situation where we've been in the top lane, we've been in the half-time chase, and we know what, you know, what the world of football can deal and give us, you know, um, and we have to be able to accept it and deal with it. Um, so that's probably one of the reasons why I'm talking to you the way I'm talking to you. But honesty is one of the key important issues in the world of football. Being honest, absolutely, 100%, but sometimes holding back on the full truth <laughs> that's the hard part of football because you sometimes appear to be that liar you know which you're not you know full well you're not um and now i'm talking to you and it's 10 12 years ago it probably doesn't matter um as much but uh, if i can help a coach out there with how i felt at the time then um, then so be it all well and good no that's fantastic um i listened to an, an podcast with Sean Dice yesterday and he was talking about how how he gets away, how his wife kind of knows to take his mind away when he's under the pressure. I mean, when you're going through situations like that and the media are cranking it up, how did you deal with it? How did you overcome it? How did you get away from it? Um, it was difficult to get away from it because I love the game so much and I'm not saying by any stretch of imagination that means Sean Dice doesn't love the game because I've I've been on holiday with Sean and I don't mean literally being on holiday with him. We had a we had a timeshare uh, in Portugal and we'd, we'd had the same week or, or fortnight and we overlapped and quite often we'd, we'd sit around the table and it was non-stop football. It was regardless, we, we weren't... You know, he was at Watford as a young a, a youth team coach, and I was um, going through the ranks at Bolton and, and going into my first job at Derby, and, and you name it. We, we were just boxing clever and trying to get to the top, and all of them things. But it was non-stop talking about football. And it's very difficult if Sean said he, he tries to find a way. I think everybody is trying to find a way to get away from football, but it's as far as I'm concerned, it's impossible because it's. You know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you're doing is thinking football. And when you go to sleep at night, it's your last thought. Um, and that's, I think that's 
that's the beauty of any success that you get. You know, that's the way we are. And you know, doesn't say it's the only way by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just the way I am. Um, and I know it's the way Sean is for sure. Uh, but if I did endeavour to get away for it for an hour or two, it would be on the golf course. Um, or I also invested in um, in one or two horses when I was at uh, Old City. My chairman was into that as well. Uh, and a day out at the races was a fantastic way of getting away from from football. But you were always surrounded by people who wanted to to talk football to you. So it's it's always difficult, Gary. But um, this is this is what I'm all about. You know, this is I can sit and talk to you all day. Um, you know, whether it be over a coffee or a glass of wine or or whatever, it doesn't matter. It would always get round to football if you if you're with like-minded people. You know. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um... What was your biggest strengths, or what are your biggest strengths, as manager? Have they changed? Is it is it the training ground? Is it the talks at the halftime, pre-game? Is it touchline managing the match? Where do you see your biggest strengths? Um, I mean, I think my biggest strength is being natural and being honest. Um, I think it's um, you know, the the preparation for for games was always something that I learned quite a lot of Sam. Um, and the timing, the timing of any key message, the timing of any anything that needed to be delivered, he was a master at, uh, at timing. You know, whether that being a, a pre-match team talk, or whether it be on the training ground during the week, or whether that be at half time, or just before the game, whatever, he was quite a master at that. You know, and um, and I, uh, you have to learn that. You know, that's something that you have to learn. I think it's uh, experience brings that. But um, you know, we've we've all thought of the right thing to say. We've all thought of uh, what we're going to say. Um, but when it comes from within, it's almost like Sam once described when I was a young coach working for him at Blackpool. Sam once described it as um, um, it comes from the stomach. You know, and you, you, you feel it. You, you feel it coming, you know, and if, if you need to say something in a changing room, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a captain, whether you're a player, goalkeeper, whether you're a first-team coach, whether you're a, uh, an academy coach and you're in the first-team changing room, or whether you're the manager, the assistant manager, what, whatever. If you feel as if, if, if it's right to say, it'll come out. And um, I always remember, he's, uh, I'm, I'm going to not be honest here, but I was in Blackpool's changing room and I said it to the club captain when I, he did something on the pitch that I didn't like. And it come to the end of the game and I delivered something that he didn't like. And it was quite brutal. And after the game, we um, obviously fed back to Sam and, and uh, Bobby Saxton, who was the assistant manager. And um, the information that I'd given to this player, I was going through it in my head. Was it right what I'd done? So I said to Sam, what do you think of what I said? And Sam said, listen, if you feel what you feel and you say what you say, it doesn't matter how it comes out, it, it, it'll be right. And, and sure enough, the player pulled me on a one-to-one -one and he thanked me for it. Uh, and I have been brutally, harshly honest with this guy, but he thanked me for it and we're still good friends to this day. And oh. uh, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that lesson. It was to the biggest player in the club at the time. And uh, he, he was thanking for me, thanking me for it 20 years later, you know. So um, I think as, as coaches, your strength comes from your honesty. Your strength comes from your delivery. 
But if it's too precise, if it's too measured, and sometimes players look at it and go, ooh, he's rehearsed that too much, you know, he's thought about that too much. Or, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm talking to somebody who's been in the changing room. And, but my biggest, my biggest thing would be uh, honesty and, and trying to get the timing part of it right, you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Whenever, like, you're obviously you were you value and you have gone through the coach education. Do you think now as a coaching community there is a bit too much theory in what we're doing, and we're a bit you know philosophy and culture become a bit keywords? I don't think it's too much theory. I think um, the the day of of uh, the the old coach now is is disappearing for sure. I mean, I I watched um, I haven't watched too much football in lockdown to be fair. Um, but I picked and chose and chose what I what I thought I might learn something from. And uh, strangely enough, the nineteen eighty nine final game, uh, Liverpool versus Arsenal, where you know Arsenal scored that late second goal that won the title for them. Um, I just wanted to see the difference. I wanted to have a look at something that was thirty years old, and, and uh, I wanted to see what I've been through as a player what the coaches were going through at that time, what they were doing at that time to try and improve players, uh, which was too far between, to tell you the truth. The, the great coaches were, were miles away from the rest of us. And then what have we done now to get closer to the great coaches? And I think we're getting closer. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the emergence of, of school teachers, the emergence of translators in, in Jose Mourinho, who have now gone qualified to the highest level and winning things, it's quite, it's quite interesting as far as I'm concerned. It's quite phenomenal. And uh, I love it, mate. I think it's fantastic. School teacher can be a top uh, manager stroke coach in the world. I think it's fantastic that they have a facility first and foremost, but the ability to as well. And uh, I think the technical part of the game in 1989 was way, way off what it is now. Now, I know the game has changed in terms of, of rules and regulations, and, and you have to take your hat off to the... The players, you have to take your hand off to the coaching staff that have gone through that process. You know, 30 years of rule changes, back pass law, goalkeepers. You know, the goalkeepers are now the best players from a technical point of view, the best passers of the ball on the foot on the football pitch. Now, you know, one day it's going to take, it's probably in the near future, very, very near future, it's going to take a centre-half to go in goals now because he's not going to be needed uh, to make saves. He's going to be needed as the 11th outfield player. That's basically where we're going. That's the way the game's going. And I, I honestly thought we had one in, in Fernando Hierro. He, um, he came to us as a centre-half from Spain, in my word. He was the, te- the best technical passer that we had. He was the best. He had unbelievable ability. But he could, he could take another 10-yard step back and go in goals because sometimes games, you know, you're playing against some opposition, you don't need a goalkeeper. That was never the case at Bolton Wonders, unfortunately. You know, we always needed a goalkeeper because we were up against it. But it is, um, it is hats off to the way the game's going. And I'm hanging on the sheer tails of, of everybody because I'll never, ever believe that you stop learning. And I've just, um, I've just applied for the um, diploma this year at John Moore's University. So I've just been accepted for that. And I'm going to carry on learning and evolving, even though it's 61 birthday. Uh, I'm just going to keep on going and, and uh, trying to get to the top again, if, if I possibly can. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, what was India like? What were your biggest takeaways from that experience? From from who, sorry? What, uh, your, your experience in India, how was that? Um, 
I have to say, Gary, it's it was a fantastic experience uh, from my learning curve. Um, I always wanted to coach abroad. I always wanted to go abroad. Uh, I always wanted to play abroad, but I never got the chance to play. And I never thought that I was going to be coming up to 60 when I had the first opportunity, real opportunity to go abroad, which was India. Um, I honestly thought it was going to be over the, the pond and going towards America um, and going to an English-speaking or British-speaking British changing room. For to go to a, a, a changing room that uh, had two English-speaking players in there, uh, one Jose Mourinho for me, which was uh, Marco Stankovic, who, who spoke six different languages, and, uh, and then two Spanish players, uh, one Brazilian, um, one Austrian, it was it was quite a, a, a eclectic mix to tell you the truth, but also eighteen Indian players that had twenty four different languages in India. So they, the cultural shock was there first and foremost, but the language barrier that I had to get over um, was the biggest challenge. And I almost became the teacher, and I, you know I went back into the classroom and, and became the teacher, as in I didn't spend as much time on the coaching field as what I wanted to. But you couldn't because it was 35, 36 degrees of heat. So the majority of the of the session was um, predominantly um, technical stuff. But you could only spend an hour on the training and had to go back inside, you know. But when you went in, went back inside, I had to learn to communicate um, on a flip chart, video, uh, any kind of footage I could, translator. Um, I became the teacher and that was the biggest learning curve for me stepping away from the coaching field, stepping away from the training ground, getting in the classroom and doing one-on-ones with players and letting them know a little bit more about you. I think that was my biggest learning curve. And I stepped away from me just coaching on the training field day in, day out. And it was a better learning curve for me. I've learned a little bit more, well, a lot more about myself. Yeah, I saw the, the article in the one of the newspapers did about the when you found out it was a tra- uh, you're training on the same day as one of the festivals, and yeah. you went and joined in. This is uh, there's a couple of things with lockdown. Uh, I'm watching TV and, and I'm getting a couple of um, uh, sort of flashbacks. One or two um, programs coming out of India. Um, one in Chennai the other day. There was one in Calcutta the other day. There was one in uh, Delhi, um, and it was places that I'd been to and. and crazy world in India. It's just unbelievably different culture. But one of the cultural, uh, two, two of the great festivals are Diwali, which is the festival of food. I know a lot of people say it's a festival of light, but it, they really do celebrate the food. And, uh, and Holi, and the festival of Holi, which is the festival of colour. And they basically, they, um, they throw uh, powder, colourful powder, which is grated down from plants, so there's no allergies and stuff like that. You know, you can you just get all sorts of different colours, and they play the great music that they have over there. You know, it's it's music that you cannot keep your feet still to. You know, you've got to dance. Um, and it was it was my team manager who said it. You realise, you know, you, you've said training tomorrow morning. It was something like eight thirty in the morning. That we were training, training tomorrow morning at eight thirty. He said that that's when the festival really kicks in. So the Indian boys. The Indian boys wouldn't have been drinking all night or anything like that. He said, but they would have been awake all night. They would have been having this festival of, of colour. Um, so I said, right, OK, we'll sack training and uh, let's get involved in the uh, in the festival. Let's join in with, with the culture. 
because a lot of people think culture is food basically it's not it's it's religion it's it's you name it it's it's everything everything you can actually try and get out of a of a cultural experience or a country so we joined in and my my word i had a fabulous day and um i probably bumped into about 20 of the uh, the indian boys and every one of them was green uh, yellow white red you name it there were, there were all sorts of different colors uh, couldn't recognize them at first but uh, we had a fantastic photograph and and uh, and celebrated uh, abruptly and then and then the following day we uh, they had payback time they got uh, i wouldn't say beasted but they certainly had a training session that they would remember that's for sure <laughs> brilliant uh last one for you what advice would you have for for young coaches who aspire to work at the level that, that you've reached well i i honestly think the um the reason why i got to um the level I got to was um, was being true to myself. You know, I think being honest with yourself, speaking when you think you've got to say something, don't be frightened of saying it, you know. Um, obviously, realise the forum that you're talking in. If you're talking in a changing room and the, the manager is, is um, in mid-speech, you're not going to get up and, and start talking over him. Um, wait your turn. But when you ask the question, if you haven't got the answer, if you haven't got the and the ability to say say something you've got to go out and find that answer but if you find an answer that you believe in say it you know don't be frightened of saying it uh, be honest be truthful um that's the best possible approach you can you can have as a coach be be true to yourself um and i look forward to seeing you at the highest level if that's the case phil that was uh that was fantastic i, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, unbelievable perspective and insight and, and really, really appreciate your honesty as well. That was fantastic. No problem, Gary. Really uh, appreciate the invite. Uh, if I can help anybody out there, certainly from a coaching perspective or an ambition perspective, you know, um, please feel free to get in touch. I've got, um, you'll have my email address, Gary, for sure, handed out. Um, if anybody wants to ask me questions away from this, you know, because they couldn't get a chance to, please do. Uh, I'll answer everything with uh, the honesty that I've showed there. Wow. Wow. First class. Phil, happy birthday. Uh, enjoy, a, hopefully, a couple of celebratory drinks, and we'll we'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Good okay, we'll do. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernin on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.